Um, all right, well, let's gather the gavel list to order, Mike, because I know we're on a, a little bit of a tight schedule. You got horses to feed, as I understand. Hi, I sure do. <laughs> all right, where are you, where do you live? I live on a little ranch that me and my wife bought last year, about seventy-five miles from Chicago. Mm-hmm. Okay, about, about an hour due south from NIU, as a matter of fact. Okay, all right. Well, I, you know, it, it, I love podcasts that are with folks that I. I don't actually know at all. And I feel like I kind of know you because you went to NIU. Is that correct? Yeah. And so we have some cross-pollination in terms of mentors that we've had through Cliff Alexis or Liam Teague or Mia Gormandy or Yuko Asada, who's a dear friend of mine now or, or has been sure. for a while. Like, But I'm curious, like, I'd like to get, a little, get to know a little bit about you, but also like why you reached out to me after a post I made, if I'm not mistaken. Are you still there? Yeah. Okay. Great. Yeah. Sorry, you froze. Okay. You reached out to me uh, after a post, and you have been properly persistent, and I appreciate that because my schedule has been absolutely bonkers. And uh, anyway, but okay. I, I kind of am curious to start off there. Like, what what prompted you to want to be on the podcast, and what was on your mind, and and maybe we'll go from there. Well, uh, I mean, there's the the obvious shameless self promotion part, <laughs> but but honestly. Uh, I hang out with Yuko pretty regularly mm-hmm. and either stuff you post on Facebook or stuff she brings up that you guys discuss or whatever, you come up in conversation a lot. Mm-hmm. And from w- what I've seen since we've been Facebook friends for, I don't, I don't even know how long. Uh, I, I think we share a lot of background and I really, one of the things that, pre- po- that brought me into this most recent poke to, <laughs> to be on the podcast or whatever was I really appreciate the fact that you, even if you don't agree, you at least respect different viewpoints enough. Mm-hmm. At least it seems that way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's something that's missing from a lot of the world, particularly on Facebook. So I just. Well, can you tell me a little bit about like, I mean, I'm happy to talk about why I feel the way I feel. Um, and you, and by the way, anytime, any, any part of this chat, if you have any questions for me, just ask because I, nobody ever asks questions and I love it when people ask questions. So, so, um, feel, this is a conversation, not like, uh, me, I don't have prepped questions here. (laughs) So, um, can you tell me a little bit about like your background? Like what makes you respond to some of the things that I've either said or some of the conversations you've had with Yuko, like what are some of the reasons you're, you're feeling that way? And, and maybe like, let's go from there. Well, I come from a super blue collar background. My dad started a business when he was now just a little bit younger than I am, mm-hmm. uh, which I've been involved in my whole life. Uh, being, what, was the, what was the business? If you don't uh, mind Sandblasting, painting, powder coating. Still in business, celebrating 35 years next year. Mm-hmm. Just moved into a new facility. Great. Yeah, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, yeah, I don't know. It, I just always feel a little bit of like Midwestern love. You're from, you're from the Midwest, right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, could just, I just, I don't know. I just feel that. Well, what was, can, can you tell me a little bit? Because I have a lot of assumptions about NIU. Um mainly because of my time with Cliff and, and Liam, mostly with Cliff, to be honest, I, you know, I was, I would drive out there like 13 hours in a, in a big cargo van with my friend Jeff and we'd drive out there and get our pans tuned and um, hang with Cliff for a night or two and then drive back. I stayed with a Bryling for a while, Bryling, Bryling, I don't know if I'm saying Bryling. Bryling. Um, And, you know, it's like these weird connections. Now Abe is working on a prototype 
double second stand for me. Like anyway, weird connections, but I never actually was a student there. And yeah. now that I'm a teacher at NYU and I see what a steel band now after, I think it's now 16 years. This, this is the 16th year. Kendall Williams is now on faculty. Um, he's been on that. This is the second year now. There's now foreign students starting to come from Trinidad, but also from other countries. The diversity of the studio is starting to change a little bit. And I'm just kind of curious, you know, I, I went to the University of Akron where I was in, you know, I'm just calling balls and strikes. It was an all white studio, yeah. but we were exposed to people like Cliff. Larry Snyder made a real hard effort to bring in people like Cliff and Bootsy Sharp and Rodney and Mia and Liam and you name it. Yeah. I'm curious as a Midwestern kid, having like your, your first, you, you know, your college experience being a place like NIU where if I'm calling balls and strikes based on what I'm observing, it's a predominantly Caribbean studio where you might actually be in the minority. Oh, for sure. I was definitely in the minority the whole time. And you know, I don't want to, I'm not like casting a value judgment there. Like, oh, it must've been so hard for you because I know that's not the truth. And I know it was like, it was awesome for all of the reasons, but I'm curious for you, like, what were some things about your worldview or maybe some things that you had grown up with that maybe like were, when you were face to face with people that really sort of cemented some things that you maybe viewed, but also helped adapt some things and replant them in the right place. Hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I I think Honestly, and as cheesy as this may sound, the biggest thing that hit me, and I think I would have said this in at the time, and I definitely say it looking back, is how much it cemented the value of hard work. Mm. Because, like, I don't know many people that are harder working than Mia Gormandy. Like, yep, she works an insane amount all the time, and it's you know with five hundred different projects. It's not like just you know one thing that she's all in on and whatever she has, she balances a crazy, crazy number of spinning plates. And I come from, like I said, very blue collar background. My dad started his business. And when I was growing up, he worked, you know, 70, 80, 90 hours a week. You know, he worked as much as it took to get stuff done. And, and I didn't really always understand what that meant for him, for me, certainly at the time when I was very young and for, uh, for our respective futures, for the fact that it allowed me to go to NIU and study music and study steel pan and not have to go get an engineering degree or, you know, something a little more Mm -hmm. practical on paper, maybe. Um, I think that definitely that's, that's the biggest, the biggest thing for me. And the fact that that's so universal, I, I don't think I really realized that the, uh, the work ethic that can come with either passion or necessity or whatever mm-hmm. it is so universal. I mean, there's not, not only does it matter where you're from or what you believe in your religious beliefs, what your family did when you were growing up, the background you came from mm-hmm. either, you know, I don't know, not, not to even speculate on people's backgrounds, but you know, people come from some form of nothing, some form of something, some form of abuse, some form of privilege, it doesn't matter. The people that seem to find a way to work through and beyond those things are the ones that seem to be the most successful in, in my observation. And certainly at NIU, mm-hmm. uh, the students that were creative with 
how do hey mike i'm really sorry my wife is on a business call and i'm on dog duty right now so give me one second i'll be right back this is amazing no and it breaks my heart to have to even pause this so give me one second buddy right no back. problem all right buddy i'm back sorry um no and I, may, I may have to run in a second just it is what it is but that's all right my dog's probably going to bark at the least opportune moment too it's okay all right we'll clap this back to order so one of the the thing i was thinking about as i was running to get my dogs outside which i'm going to have to get in a second is that one of the things that dawned on me i'm 42 now and the thing that i'm realizing is a lot of a similar work ethic that i feel like i was around as a kid like my dad was you know woke up at four went to work at five five thirty came home at six. Mm-hmm. Like some nights it was later, some nights it was earlier. There was never a like clock out moment. My mom was a school teacher and she was always grading papers until they were done. It wasn't like she got paid yeah. extra whenever she graded those papers, you know? And whenever I go to a steel band rehearsal, I recognize it very similar with the cliff Alexis. It's like, we're going to tune this pan until it's done. Right. And so like in a weird way, some things that I was taught about race were not about race. It was about a work ethic. And then I learned about race and stuff later. And Cliff was always telling me about things, but I didn't really understand the context of everything I was seeing. For instance, in Brooklyn steel band yards, like this is very fascinating how in Brooklyn, we're so percussion is situated. Yeah. <laughs> you know why these neighborhoods are set up. Wow. The steel band has to move its yard every year, you know? And then that's where like, but I'm also, anyway, it's just for me, like I'm identifying all these things. That's why I asked you that question for you. Like, what are some, you know, just some things that imprinted on you a little bit in your time working with folks who didn't come from the same culture or background that you did? Like, what was it like being in the same classroom with like, were you in school with Khan? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Khan started. He's the minister of culture. Yeah. He's like the minister of culture in Antigua and Barbuda right now. Like yeah. and you were like in the practice with him, practice room with him, like shitting the bed on stuff. Like yeah. <laughs> together. Like so can you just tell me like what 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 did you take from that? Man, uh I mean so I I don't know. It's certainly a theme in, in my life, but I have to say it's the hard work and and creative application of that hard work. I mean, Khan has an ear and an eye for opportunity. Right? He doesn't miss an opportunity to make a musical statement. Mm-hmm. Period. Mm-hmm. Whether it's a an opportunity for a gig like a literal opportunity or a really minuscule breath in the middle of a standard or a one of his original tunes or whatever, where he feels the need or the opportunity to make a statement, he's going to make a musical statement. If, it, if there's a spot for it, he's going to make it. It would, you know, which of course sometimes could mean not making a statement at all, but we don't need to get into that. Um, yeah. I mean, he, I don't know. <laughs> I it's, it's, one of those things that's such an elegantly simple message because it almost doesn't matter what you work on. Uh, When I was in high school, I studied percussion with Vern Spivak and his big thing was, yeah, go home, practice seal pan, practice that as much as you want. Mm -hmm. And then come back to my, your lesson next week, we're going to play marimba. Like you will learn something on seal pan that will help you be a better marimba player. Right. And vice versa. So if you're working on, jazz or pitching festivals you know to play a gig to uh assembling an instrument learning to build in tune learning to lay out a seal pan learning to build a a stand 
whatever, mm-hmm. you know, they all, everything all feeds itself. So if you work hard mm-hmm. at one thing, it's going to lead you to more things to work hard at. Mm-hmm. And that's going to continue to, you know, right, right, right. Grow, grow your envelope, you know, grow your bag of tricks. Well, in the spirit of the podcast, which is called concert honesty, like, can you tell me something that like, really you felt a real struggle within yourself? Like, Oh man, not like in like, you know, I, I think black people are weird, like that sort of weirdness, but like, was there anything about like just differences culturally or in the way that music was communicated where you were just like, Oh my God, this is so hard for me. Why is this so hard? Like, were there any moments for you or things that you still now, after having gone through it, you feel like, you know what? I'm right about that. This could be better <laughs> if, you know, and be willing to have that. Like you could sit down with Khan on this podcast and and have that conversation, you know, like, yeah. is there anything that you feel like on that level that you thought about or really chewed on after your time there? You know, the, the one thing, particularly with the Caribbean people and, and myself, and at least my perception was the Caribbean people and the other American students in the steel pan studio is their ability to internalize things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Not, not to say that I'm any sort of amazing reader or whatever, right. but I certainly use the crutch of reading and, you know, rationalizing yeah. music at, le- at least as I'm learning it. Uh, and sometimes as I'm performing it and I, I felt like the Caribbean people had a particular knack that, tr- I mean, some of the Trinis, especially, and, and, you know, Khan, obviously not from Trinidad, but mm-hmm. uh, equally talented at just something that goes, goes in the one ear and then it just rattles around in there forever. I feel like, you know, right, right. where I feel like it takes several passes of in and out <laughs> before something sticks sometimes. Mm-hmm. Uh I feel that same, I feel that same exact thing. And that's, I will say for me, I was asking the question, but like for me, honestly, the thing that I have had the hardest struggle with both in Trinidad and in Brooklyn is, is like the sense of the time structure of a rehearsal, like when things start, when things end. And that's been the hardest thing for me to navigate because I was you know, I'm just going to call my, my privilege here. I was raised, like you didn't miss school. If you were sick, you went to school. Like I did all the things I had perfect attendance all through elementary school, all through high school. Like I never missed a class in college unless it was a snow day. Like I'm just that, that was my mom was a school teacher. Like, so right or wrong. That's just how I was raised. I'm not saying that's good or bad. That's just who I am. So like when steel band, when they say like steel band rehearsals at seven, I'm there at like six 45. Right. Yeah, setting up and, and no one shows up to like, like right? no one shows up to like eight thirty, and like, but I still have that's like for me like I just still feel that like oh I gotta be there, but but then even but past I mean that's just a dumb that's a dumb thing because it's, it has nothing to do with a work ethic at all because oh, for sure for when sure. people start rehearsing we're willing to go till four in the morning they're willing to rehearse for eight hours it's just like when that eight hour starts is right. is kind of a is a more democratic thing than I think I ever imagined and that is something that i think i'm having to tease out personally and be like oh that's that's not the way culturally i was raised nothing was democratic really and like my teacher was like your rehearsal starts at seven if you're late you get an f and i'm like okay you know (laughs) know? and so anyway just to say no value judgment but that's been that's been a real hard thing for me to actually grapple with but the music the music and when i say literacy i don't mean a like again no value judgment but having a score in front of me 
Kendall Williams asked me to drill a piece of his in Brooklyn. And so I like, I came and I have the score and I'm like, I'm not hearing things and I'm looking up and I'm able to drill it. But everybody looked at me like I was a wizard. And I was like, <laughs> I'm not like, I have terrible ears. Like I'm like, I can't, no one can teach me the score, but I can look at it and be like, this line's not here. Right. Well, this, or, or this line's getting muddy because this line's too loud. You know, I could, that's something I can, I can move those faders around all day. Totally. Um, and so that has been, trying to figure out how to communicate that in a, in real time yeah, has been a real struggle. Like, cause then I'll go down to skiffle bunch in Trinidad, same deal. I have a score in front of me. Nobody there is reading a score and, and it's not a good or a bad thing. It's just true. And so what am I supposed to do? Be like, start at measure 53, you know? Yeah. <laughs> no, <laughs> that's not, I have to know, I have to be able to say, start at the verse variation. They all know what the verse variation is. And then I can sing the first bar and they're like, Oh, that place. Yeah. And they all know how to play it from memory from there. I can't do that. You also, know, so. that the ability to start and stop a phrase, like in the middle of a phrase. Right. That, that always blew my mind, too. Like someone would sing the last line of a Kitchener tune and then part of the first line. And then just in whatever key, whatever, doesn't matter. Some some people will just jump right in from the third, second and a half bar of, right. the, you know, whatever. Right. I mean, and that's the thing too, that like, I'm trying to adjust in my own teaching at NYU, like Kendall is now teaching there and I'm pur- purposefully having him teach by rote. Yeah. Because that's a process none of those students have really ever had. And I have a very little sort of foundation in. it's hard for me. So I got to imagine it's hard for like, you know, th- these students who have never even really played pan to begin with. And, but I think culturally, it's important to me to make sure that these students that are paying what they're paying to be at NYU or NIU for them to know that if they went to Trinidad, this wouldn't be a new experience. Right. You know, they'd be at home. They'd feel like, Oh, cool. I don't have to worry about this. I can now talk about like, where should I get good food? Right. You know, like, and actually like, Oh, can you tell me about the black beret you're wearing with the black Panther logo on it? Like, what does that mean? You're talking to an older gentleman from the, you know, the sixties, like, those are the conversations that are actually way more important to you as a person than is it C or C sharp? What was that passage? Oh, can you just write it down? Like <laughs> if, if I had had that when I went to Trinidad in 2002, I would have learned so much more. Yeah, totally. And so I got basically, I had to drink out of a fire hose for two days and it blew the back of my head out, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but, but I survived and I, you know, I'm here for it. And so like, and I think I constantly think of people like Cliff. I mean, for you, like, can you tell me, like, is there anything about Cliff that sort of like, if you had to give the ele- elevator pitch on Cliff in your time with him for better or worse, like, what would you say about, about Cliff? <laughs> I know that's uh, a, a complicated and possibly loaded question, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> knowing how much I dearly love the man, but <laughs> yeah, well, I I mean the the like for better or worse thing is probably just that Cliff was ultra stubborn. Mm-hmm. Mm. Like whatever he thought is what he thought. There was no you know you weren't going to change it. He was glad to learn things, but if he already had learned, if he felt he had learned it and it was it was developed opinion, <laughs> that's, that's what it was. Mike, that's a really I, I that's an important thing. I want to write that down. Like if I'm happy to learn things. But if I feel like I've learned something, 
<laughs> you have to really work hard to convince me to unlearn it. Well, that's, you know, that's humanity in general. Like yeah. I think racism is a learned thing too. We have to teach people how to unlearn that, but you're right about cliff in the sense that like they were like, there was a specific way to speak to the C natural that you were trying to tune. Yeah. And it didn't matter what you told him. And it didn't matter if you were just like cliff give up, you know, he would just keep doing it, you know? And so, but, but in a sense, like there's a, there's a, you know, he's also 85. Yeah. You know? And I feel like that at that point, I want to give someone a little bit of room to be like, all right, you must've thought about this for a second. Yeah. <laughs> I've thought about it for 42 years. <laughs> so yeah. well, what else, what else? So within that, his exceeding willingness to learn and or to hold on what he's already learned, he would share with anybody. Mm. I, I mean, I never, I never once thought that Cliff withheld certainly an opinion, but definitely not information either from really anybody, mm -hmm. you know, uh, I know he was, his personal life was his personal life. And those that know him pretty well know that it was pretty complicated at times, but he, uh, he did a good job to keep that separate from yeah. raw information, mm -hmm. you know, certain yeah. things you would educate people on, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but if, you know, something he had learned, whether right or wrong, <laughs> that he knew he would be glad to explain it to you to the yeah, best yeah. of his knowledge. If you ask the right question, you know? Yeah. Cliff, I feel like, and Mike, I'm really sorry. This may be the best shortest podcast I've ever done, um, but I've really appreciated it. We'll have to connect again whenever uh, my wife's on a Zoom call and my dogs are going bonkers. So this is possibly the worst time, but I feel like we really drilled down on something really interesting here. Um, but I would say like for me, the thing I take away with Cliff and all of my time, I would say across the board in the Caribbean pan community is this overarching sense of like protection yeah. And this sort of like, it's earned, it's not like automatic, mm -hmm. but like, if you just come back a second time yep, yeah, and then, then a third, and then you sort of can't avoid, avoid the fourth and the fifth and the sixth after that, because then that feeling comes in of like, Oh my God, Cliff would murder somebody for me. <laughs> like, yeah. that's a weird feeling. And I know that when I, every time I go to Trinidad, Every time I went to Trinidad before Cliff passed, I know he called everybody. Yeah, I'm 42. I know Cliff called people. He didn't exactly. need to. That's a different thing. That's a that's a weird feeling that I I I feel like I'm glad to have spoken to you about because um it's something that that I wish you know more Midwestern white kids would get to experience, you know, like it's a it's a it's a real unique thing because then I think that radiates out then to other things like race and how we talk to each other and how we communicate. And that's, you know, I appreciate you, you responding to the podcast. I think it's crucial. I'm not saying I agree with everybody that who has a dissenting opinion with me. I, I vehemently agree, disagree with people like Ben Shapiro on some things. I vehemently disagree with people like Jordan Peterson on 99% of what they say. But it's important to me to understand that those people exist, to understand what they're saying, so I can become educated and sharpen my axe so yeah. that over the course of my life, I get a scalpel. You know yeah. what I mean? And right now it's a 
kind of a blunt axe. It's a 42 year old axe and I'm sort of still like hacking away, but I hope by the end I'm cliff and I'm sort of be like, Nope, right here. Yeah. And that is something he was able to do. And um, I think that radiated out to people like Yuko and Mia and, and obviously now folks like you and so on and so forth. Well, and I, I'll never forget. So I, I, two things. I'll never forget two things. Number one, the first time I met Cliff, I was 12 years old. I had seen the NIU steel band at the Norris center in St. Charles, Illinois, which later had been a concert. I got to play with the NIU steel band five mm-hmm. times or four times. Um, I went up and I introduced myself to Liam. I was, you know, all excited, you know, little kid, whatever. And I went to say hi to Cliff. And he like never looked me in the eye and gave me this limp handshake, but he did shake my hand mm-hmm. and said, thanks and walked away. Mm-hmm. Like 12. So I guess I was, I think I was 16 or 17. So a few years later, I had gotten pans. I'd been to his office and sat there for hours while he tuned my instruments. I don't, I don't know why, but whenever I took my pans, I was going to sit there as long as it took. I never, I never dropped off an instrument unless something mm-hmm. happened in clips like, Hey, I can't do it today. Leave it here. I'll have it for you in the morning or something like that, which yeah, happened yeah. I think, twice, yeah. but I've sat in his office for hours. Um, when I was 16 or 17, I was at my dad's shop working on, you know, it was maybe in the summer. It must've been. And Cliff called me back about when to bring my pan up to DeKalb. And I looked at my phone and said, oh, hey, it's Cliff. And my dad, who had only met him one time, I think, previously goes, oh, you better take that. Like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and, and then, you know, later on, as, as Cliff got to know my dad when I was a student at IU and stuff, they, you know, they kind of had a, a weird fatherly. Yeah, yeah because that. your dad started a business and so did Cliff. Yeah. And he started a department at a university as one of the only other Trinidadians to have ever done that outside of Ellie Manette. There's other folks. I'm not saying there's not other folks in the scene, but like Cliff, Cliff knows what, a, what it is to be a pioneer. And yeah. he sees, he respect sees respect. And I'm sure he saw your dad and you're like, he was just like, rah, rah, rah. Oh yeah. He's one of us, you know, like, you know, and I'm, I'm sure your dad and Cliff wouldn't have agreed on everything if you kept drilling down, but that disagreement was not the premise upon which like their whole relationship would have shattered. You know, it was their really thick, strong hands. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, Close to the big right arm. Yeah. Um, Well, Mike, I'm I'm really sorry to have to wrap this up soon, but actually you've sort of made me think about what it means to do sort of like 20 minute podcasts. Like I really, (laughs) I I want to dig deeper with you and have a really longer chat, but, but it's been nice to sort of just be like, hello, who are you? And let's talk about some intense stuff for two seconds and, and hopefully learn something. But Perfect. <laughs> I've appreciated it, Mike. You go feed your horses and I'll go take care of my dogs. And I will look forward to hopefully chatting with you longer in, in the future here. Yeah, man. Anytime. Anytime you got an opening, you know how to get me. All right. Thanks, buddy. Take it easy. Stay healthy. Thanks, Josh. See you. Bye. Okay, I hope you enjoyed that conversation. This podcast is brought to you by Liquid Drum, liquiddrum.com down in Waco, Texas. Uh, my good friend Todd Meehan runs an amazing percussion company down there. Great merch, great content. Check him out, liquiddrum.com. Also, Kyle Dunleavy, dunleavypans.com, D-U-N-L-E-A-V-Y pans.com. Kyle Dunleavy makes and builds all the steel drums that I perform and teach on, uh, and so percussion, as well as at NYU and Princeton. Uh, He's an amazing, amazing tuner builder, Um, just a really nice guy, very dependable. Check him out. If you are interested at all in steel pan advocacy, 
uh, want to learn more about the goings-on uh, in Pan in Brooklyn, check out paninmotion.com. My good friend Kendall Williams, uh, Jerry Guy, Trisha Guy, and uh, Arisha John run an amazing organization called paninmotion.com. Check them out. And finally, Aliandre Mirage runs an amazing uh, clothing apparel company in Brooklyn that is steel pan-centric. You can check him out at mangochowclothing.com. I own a bunch of his shirts. They're amazing, very stylish, uh, beautiful, beautifully made. Check them out. mangochowclothing.com. Okay, hope you're well. Talk to you soon. Bye.